0: The following podcast may be unsuitable for children or more sensitive listeners and may contain explicit language.
1: Live from the Green Mill in Chicago, it's the Paper Machete, a weekly live magazine. Issue date September 20th, 2014. You are at a live magazine. You're going to hear comedians, journalists, and orators talking about current events, pop culture, and American manners. You are at a weekly salon in a Chicago saloon. My name is Christopher. I am your editor-in-chief, go-go-boy, cabaret cabbie, show business, shaman, Empress impresario, and master's less master of ceremonies. Table of contents. This week, we'll dissect a social media fantasia created by a phony trip to Asia. We'll celebrate the best of the NFL when we're paid a visit by Roger Goodell. <laughs> and our own Caitlin Parrish will have the last word on the real cause of death of Richard III. And your tidy whys will be rocked off by the gang from Mr. Ma'am! <clears throat> Masthead roll call. Jennifer Pipas. Here. Andrew Knox. Here. Caitlin Parrish. Mr. Ma'am. Each and everyone a Scientologist. And this week, as usual, the drinks will be poured into stomachs by you, our loyal audience of almost late bloomers, cheap beer consumers, early adopters, dialogue prompters, clever assholes, chicks with brass balls, daytime drinkers, culture vultures, dreamers, schemers, screamers, nice decent church people and all the members of the Obama administration who are listening today live via wiretap. If you can hear my voice and ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, hipsters and hopheads, writers of op-eds, Mindaman and Heron and Kinfolk, this live magazine is officially live and we are all about to read it together. We begin this week with the social media report and a popular Chicago blogger making her machete debut today. You know her from her online persona, Captain Awkward. Everybody, give a warm Greenwill welcome to Jennifer Peepas.
2: This is the social media report, or your weekly reminder that identity is a construct and that people are liars. <laughs> Last year, Dutch artist and student, Zella van den Born, told her family and friends she was heading to Asia for five weeks. She updated her social media feeds frequently with photos of her snorkeling, visiting Buddhist temples, walking on beautiful beaches, and eating delicious food. She sent her family postcards, and she Skyped with them at odd hours from her hotel room. She was in Amsterdam the whole time. (laughs) She cooked the food herself in her kitchen, or she went to local Asian restaurants. She visited nearby Buddhist temples and talked the nice people there into posing for pictures with her. She decorated parts of her apartment to look like foreign hotel rooms for her Skype dates and pretended to have dodgy Wi-Fi connections to, I think, get out of those Skype dates. She worked with a local photographer to create matching lighting in the photos of her so that they could be more realistically photoshopped into images she downloaded from the internet. And when she went out in Amsterdam, which she had to do from time to time, she wore a disguise, like dark glasses and scarves and a big bulky coat, um, basically like a spy. Ms. Vandenborn revealed the ruse to her friends and family after the fact and videotaped their reactions and uh, created short videos to show how she had created like each deception, taking you back through the process. Um, It turns out that it was an art project for school about how easy it is to manipulate photos and how easy it is to construct reality by curating what we show on social media. The deception worked partly because most vacation photos taken by tourists are boring and have a predictable aesthetic. What's one more carefree white girl eating exotic dumplings or frolicking on a beach, especially since most of our visual conception of Asia <laughs> is filtered through other trite snapshots just like these. The story hit English-speaking news outlets this week with maximum use of the word fake Thank you, BuzzFeed. Thank you. Ms. Vandenborn wanted her project to make people think about the unreliability of photographs as documents of reality, and also about how much we construct and sanitize our online persona as we choose what we share on social networks. It's a timely message since it turns out there's money to be made in this kind of catfishing. As Chicagoist recently reported, a company called Virtual Dating Assistance has been recruiting Chicago writers, offering them $12 to $15 an hour an hour to create online dating profiles and craft messages on behalf of busy, successful executives who want to meet women but don't have time to hone the skills required for online dating. Skills like basic writing, (laughs) checking email, telling the truth. The dating experts or poorly paid writers at um, Virtual Dating Assistants, or VDA, (laughs) as they will hence be known, will make your profile, select and retouch your photos, handle your correspondence, which means they're writing the messages and reading the messages, and find and filter candidates for the job of your girlfriend. Um, They will throw in dating concierge services and a pro photo session if you opt for the $1,400 a month executive package. They will make your dinner reservations and take pictures of you for $1,400 a month. All you have to do is show up and try not to bore the ever-loving shit out of your date. And also keep track of all the lies that your personal Cyrano de Bergerac wrote, like how much you love feminist science fiction and how your fondest wish is to curl up and marathon Outlander together with someone who will fully appreciate the costume design and rich historical detail. I'm sure all of us have looked at a dating profile of some chai guy for you and thought, oh, buddy. You seem nice, and you should get a good friend to unf that for you. How about some photos of your face? How about some photos of just you, where we can't see your ex's shoulder in a party dress just photoshopped out screen right, because that's the only picture of you in that suit that exists? Uh, how about you don't tell us how great you are at pleasuring a woman, and you let all that just be a nice surprise for someone? <laughs> and maybe don't use the word pleasuring anymore, ever. How about a spell check? How about mentioning a couple female creators in that list of 10,000 super cool bands and movies and books you like, so we can tell that you think that we are human beings? How about if you're funny, you write some funny shit instead of telling us, oh, my mom says I'm funny. I'm so funny, my enemies think I'm funny. Like, stay in your lane, bro. If you're Thank you If you're a writer hired to curate some dude into a less boring, more awesome, more guaranteed to meet attractive women now, dude, the creative possibilities for you are like fucking endless, right? You could say anything to build this person up. What Photoshop deceptions are closed to you? Oh, look, it's the time Beyonce and I petted baby white tigers at the zoo right outside Jakarta. Yeah, she's a personal friend. She's really down to earth, though. I'm sure she she can't wait to meet you. And since VDA has also set up a sister site for women, it's conceivable that two low-paid creative writers could have a total affair with the fictional (laughs) profiles of boring, but rich, very rich, $1,400 a month. People, live out an epic love story and OK OkCupid messages and swipes to the right. And okay, as artists, if you take this job, we should sign our work. If you end up doing this job for a while, no one will judge what puts food on your table, but do the world a solid and use a code phrase to alert like people, like actual people. Something like, I love the paper machete, don't you? VDA promises, among other things, that you can scroll down to discover how we'll send dates straight to your front door if you sign up today. That seems dangerous, <laughs> especially when their entire premise is based on lying. Listen to Zella Van Bendorn, Super Spy. Double check everything and meet in a public place. Thank you. Yay. How's about it for Jennifer Piboss and her paper machete
1: debut? Her blog is Captain Awkward, and you can read it on the World Wide Web. So I can wear- This week on the Strange Brews podcast, Chris Quinn is a certified Cicerone, beer podcaster, and bottle shop owner. Why did he devote so much of his life to this beverage?
2: I mean, This is it right now. I mean, this is the best time in the history of the world for beer in terms of access to high-quality beer.
1: Chris Quinn of the Beer Temple on Strange Brews. More info at wbez.org slash podcasts. Now, it's time for the sports report. Of course, everyone is talking about the NFL domestic violence scandal. It's a very divisive issue. Emotions are running high and hot. I'm so excited that we can go straight to the source. Everybody behind the bar, won't you welcome to the Green Mill for the first time, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. Everybody welcome him. Good afternoon. My name
0: is NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. I know you're probably saying to yourself, when did Roger Goodell grow a beard? And the truth is, I didn't. This is fake. Recently getting recognized on the street isn't as much fun as it used to be. Now, Michael Sam. Huh? Huh? Michael Sam. Pretty good. Pretty good. First openly gay player in the NFL. I did that. Alright? Now, let's keep that in mind... ...as we talk about the recent handling of the Ray Rice domestic violence scandal. On February four, excuse me, 15th of this year, day after Valentine's Day, Ray Rice struck his then fiance, Janae Palmer, in a casino elevator in Atlantic City. This knocked her out cold and video surfaced of Rice dragging her unconscious body out of the elevator. I swiftly suspended Rice for two whole games, which is a serious suspension in the NFL for reference I've given another two-game suspension to a player who made a helmet-to-helmet tackle. In order to get a longer suspension than two games, you have to do something really bad. For instance, I was forced to give a player a four-game suspension when they missed a scheduled drug test. Can't have that. Can't have that. I shudder to think about it. But I had to give a six game suspension to a player because we found out they got paid for some autographs when they were in college. (laughs) Domestic violence, two games. Getting paid a little bit of money in college when you're making a university millions, that's going to cost you six. (laughs) Now that you see the scale, it starts to make a little more sense, doesn't it? But still, there was outrage. Women's groups were up in arms about the suspension not being long enough, saying the NFL doesn't care about women. I love women. (laughs) My wife, Jane Skinner, is a former Fox News correspondent. Most of what I know about female empowerment, I learned from her and her blonde-haired, blue-eyed colleagues. I have twin daughters. And when I'm not lording over the most violent game on earth, I'm relaxing on my patio and coaching them as they try and beat the shit out of each other. Because I want them to grow up and marry football players, and so they should know some basic self-defense. Recently, a second video came out with elevator footage of Ray Rice striking his fiancée and her head hitting a railing as she fell to the ground. This was horrific, said the media. (laughs) And so we suspended Rice indefinitely. People have said, you already knew he hit her and knocked her out. Why does video of it change your punishment? And I'm not even going to dignify that question with a response. Uh, People have said, in your initial investigation, how did you not get the tape from inside the elevator, but TMZ was able to get it with one phone call? And to that I say something about law enforcement and legalities (laughs) and Michael Sam, right? Okay. In the past two weeks, three more NFL players have been suspended by their teams over reports of domestic violence, one of which involved giving a four-year-old permanent scars by hitting him repeatedly with a switch. American society just loves a good witch hunt, huh? And it's clear that the new fad is victimizing those who commit domestic violence. We just love to build people up make them superstars, and then once they physically abuse one of their loved ones, we just tear them down. I don't know how you sleep. And if you do sleep, I'd love to know your secret because my conscience has kept me from sleeping in months. So where do we go from here? The NFL wants to protect the people who have been harmed by our players, and we know that women and children are the two fastest-growing minorities in America. (laughs) So, we have hired a few of each to sit on our new Is This Assault Bad Enough to Get Attention from the Media Committee? These female and child professionals will be sending SMS text blasts to players asking them who they've hit that week, and do they think that person is gonna tattle. From there, the committee will make a decision on whether the player should be suspended, and if we should lower the price of their jersey in order to keep sales high. (laughs) Problem solved. Look, the NFL is the best thing going, okay? Although I'm grateful that people aren't still hounding us about the trivial issue of rampant head trauma in our game, and our refusal to pay all the workers' comp that we owe former players, I'm saddened that this new obsession with domestic violence has taken our focus off of real issues that we face every day in the NFL. Issues like excessive celebrating after touchdowns, (laughs) customized face masks, and how to build a stadium that only has luxury boxes. So as we've now taken care of the domestic violence issue, I now stand before you all today to ask a question. Are there any other issues that you're gonna end up getting angry about down the line? Tell me now so that we can address the problem by covering it up before you become aware of it. In conclusion, Michael Sam, right? You're welcome, and thank you.
1: How about a round of applause for Chicago comedic artist Andrew Knox is that guy's name. Turn our thoughts to the weak and dead royalty. Here with an original essay about the exhumed skull of Richard III is a wonderful global playwright. Back with us, she's one of our own. It's the delightful Caitlin Parrish is behind the bar. Welcome her.
3: Well, hey. Last year we dug up the lost corpse of Richard III. The famously Machiavellian king's remains were found buried unceremoniously beneath a parking lot in Leicester, England, like a medieval Jimmy Hoffa. That's a right Ricky. Now I know what you're thinking. How did scientists determine that these particular bones were Richards and not just the bones of some other stabbed to death megalomaniac? Because everyone knows the car parks of Leicester are a dumping ground for all of history's monsters. (laughs) It's not like there is a sign hanging around his crooked neck reading, Here lies Richard Plantagenet, murderer, hunchback, and general douchebag. <laughs> nope. Mother <f-ing> science. <laughs> they took the bones out of the ground and did their marvelous modern sorcery, radiocarbon testing to determine how old the skeleton was, soil analysis to see if remnants of the killing field of the Battle of Bosworth had dug into his very marrow, They broke his teeth apart and figured out what he'd eaten. For the record, swan, heron, crane, peacock, and a shit ton of wine. (laughs) Mitochondrial DNA analysis, and this is the big one, because that's what let them know that these 530-year-old bones shared a bunch of chromosomes with Anne of York, his big sister. It is amazing to me what we can do in this day and age. But this week held even more scientific wonders. This week in science being awesome... A group of forensic experts in Leicester determined pretty much exactly what happened to Richard in the final moments leading up to his death. Now, it's a familiar story to many theater majors who skimmed Shakespeare's Richard III the morning before a test with a hangover. But for the rest of you, I'll provide some background. History and a famous play tell us that Richard was born into a time of civil war. An inherently evil man who lied and maneuvered and f***ed over pretty much everyone in his family on the way to the crown. Murdered his tiny nephews, two little boys ahead of him in the line of succession, and had their bodies thrown into a pauper's grave. He broke the back of his family, got the title, reigned for two years, and then died on the field at the Battle of Bosworth, screaming, "'A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse.'" probably wishing that he could escape the righteous soldiers of Henry Tudor, bearing down on him with swords, daggers, and axes curved like crescent moons. What a pussy. (laughs) That's what history says, but this week, science told us a different story. See, history is written by the victors, and Richard III, in the end, was not a victor. Science is written by cells with no agenda beyond existence. Victory is meaningless to a cell or a skull. He was stabbed in the head nine times. Seven of these wounds were deemed survivable, including a blow that would have shaved off most of his scalp. Two of the wounds were deemed not survivable. (laughs) He didn't need a horse, he needed a bicycle helmet. (laughs) In fact, he probably had a horse. He died in an English marsh, and a horse is no help to you in the cold and bloody bog. Signs point to him dismounting and then fighting to the death with between three and four assailants. He didn't fall after the first blow or the sixth. He stayed on his feet. A woman named Sarah Hainsworth, who was one of the authors of the study on Richard skeleton, said, This doesn't tell us anything about what kind of king he was or the controversy surrounding his nephews, but whatever else people think about him, he fought bravely until he died. That's not what history tells us, but that one crack in the story about Richard leads to others. He wasn't a hunchback. His skeleton shows mild curvature of the spine, probably scoliosis, so maybe one shoulder looked a little higher than the other. I mean, it's pretty horrifying. I, I wouldn't that. I, But the chroniclers of Richard's vanquisher, Henry VII, were all too eager to cast Richard as a monster who had teeth in the womb, and Henry as the golden god who put an end to decades of civil war, which is true. The war ended, the two families squabbling over an island stopped, but that's mainly because there was no one left to kill. (laughs) And when you go back and look at the laws introduced during Richard's short rule, it's interesting to note that most of the new legislation benefited the common man over the ruling class. Richard was the first guy to ever say, hey, maybe bail's a good idea. Maybe we shouldn't be allowed to hold people indefinitely before a trial. He made it illegal for the Crown to take money on loan from the public and never pay it back, which was common practice in the years leading up to his rule. He reduced trade restrictions on bookmakers and printing presses because he thought everyone deserved to read. His only crime, from a legislative point, is of pissing off the nobility. So it comes as no surprise that Henry VII, once he was the new king, reversed many of Richard's measures, ended his own reign with a hail of corruption and greed, like a leech on the common man's dick, which, to be fair, was considered medicinal at the time. (laughs) And did everything he could to turn Richard into a monster for the ages. And he succeeded. What an asshole. And please, don't misconstrue this as an argument for Richard's canonization and sainthood. He was a king, and throughout history, kings have been, by and large, human beings capable of disgusting behavior. He might have murdered his nephews. That much is lost to history until science finds two little boys under a strip club in Liverpool. <laughs> but he wasn't a monster. Not any more or any less than any other ruler from the past we hold up as legends. Maybe there were a lot of kings who deserved a nameless grave under ugly cement more than Richard. I mean, f***. At least Richard would have closed Guantanamo.
1: The Paper Machete is produced by me, Christopher Pyatt. Our managing editor is Kim Belware. Our sound engineer is Brian Heath. Our podcast is produced by WBEZ. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit us online at thepapermachete.com. Or you can catch us live every Saturday afternoon at the Green Mill in Chicago, home of the famous Uptown Poetry Slam. Thanks for listening.